All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this day that you've given us. It's been a beautiful Saturday, and I thank you for the time I've had with the children and uh, the time preparing uh, to deliver this message to your people. Father, I pray that you'll give us wisdom in deciding when it is that we can return together in fellowship on Sunday mornings. I pray for those who are suffering because of the COVID-19 virus. Father, I pray that uh, even as we are separated and struggling with uh, the impacts of the virus and what it does to our, our local fellowship here, that these messages will be received and that your people will learn, that they'll be edified, and that we'll all grow in your word together. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. I hope you'll take your Bible with you uh, uh, wherever you are and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, um, verses 11 through 15. A real fun passage uh, for today. Uh, fun in the uh, sense of difficult, challenging, and likely to get me in trouble with somebody. But we're going to do it anyway, and if I get in trouble, at least we are supposed to be practicing social distancing, and you'll have to be upset from a distance, uh, which is better than being upset and right in my face. So First Timothy chapter 2, uh, let's begin reading together in verse 11. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Paul writes to Timothy, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control." Uh, well, as I'm recording this, I have my two daughters here to help me, my two oldest daughters. I wanted them to come along so that I could gauge their discomfort with this particular subject. So far, so good, I'll say, by the looks of it. Uh, but as I uh, approach this, this subject with you, I have two points uh, to make by way of an introduction. Number one, this is countercultural. Our secular uh, Western culture uh, around us is trying uh, desperately hard to convince everyone that will listen that there is absolutely no difference between men and women. And any message that tells the world then that there is a difference between men and women will not be well received. Uh, and the second point by way of an introduction is the Bible then not only tells us that there is a difference between men and women, but it tells us why there is a difference, namely that God created them to be different, and that men and women each have different roles in the family and in the church. Uh, in the family, the Bible tells us that the husband is to lead, that his leadership should take the form of loving service, and that he should live in understanding with his wife and seek her own growth and flourishing in the same way that Jesus wants the church to flourish. The Bible also says that wives should submit to their husbands, that the wives should help their husbands to lead their family in a godly way. Now, uh, there is a passage in the Bible in Ephesians chapter 5 that basically summarizes all of that for us, and I want to read Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33, uh, so uh, listen carefully and see if you can't pick up the tone and tenor of the difference between men and women in a marriage relationship. Ephesians 5 verse 22 uh, says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church." 
for we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, Paul continues, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her own husband. Now, in that passage, we have the basic instructions to husbands and wives. Like I said, the wife is to submit and be respectful to her husband. The husband is to love his wife, to lay down his life for her, uh, to think of his treatment and concern for her as he would think of caring for himself. It is not a difficult concept to understand. It is, however, incredibly difficult at times to execute, and I say that as a married man for nearly 20 years. Uh, it is difficult to execute in the same sense that many of God's instructions are difficult to execute. After all, we are sinners. Our tendency is not towards God's plan for our lives. Our tendency is towards our own urges and desires. God's way is better. It is the only way that glorifies him. So let me then just make a few comments on the role of men and women in marriage. And these are comments that we need to make this morning uh, as you're listening to this wherever you are on a Sunday. Uh, and these are comments that I try to make to my own children. I have one boy. I have uh, four girls. I am trying to prepare children for both sides of uh, marriage. Not an easy task. Here are a few comments I find myself routinely making to them and to others. Now, the first comment here is important to listen. You don't have to do it this way. God's word is telling you how God wants marriage to be. It is, however, painfully obvious to me that there are a whole lot of people out there who really don't care what God wants for their marriages. Their marriages don't function this way, and your marriage doesn't have to function this way either. In other words, what I'm trying to say is you are free to choose whether to take God's counsel or not. You could organize your marriage however seems best to you with whoever taking on whatever roles and responsibilities, and certainly that's what a great many people do. You don't have to take the counsel of God. You can go about it on your own. And by many standards in the world, you can have a very successful marriage by doing things quite different. For instance, if you measure the success of a marriage uh, based on how long it lasts, well, there are lots of marriages that last a real long time and are not at all attempting to do what God has designed here for the roles of men and women in marriage. If you judge the success of marriage on the ability to raise uh, happy or successful children, uh, you don't have to honor God's word to do that in the, in the secular sense of happiness and success. So there are ways to go about marriage that totally disregard what God uh, is telling us to do. And so it's important to make clear, you don't have to do it this way. I don't think you're going to get struck by a lightning bolt from heaven if you decide not to do it this way. It is a choice. There is a decision and a commitment to be made when it comes to observing what God's word says in relationship to marriage. That's the first comment that I need to make. The second comment, God blesses his people as they seek to honor him. This is a basic principle for all of human life. It certainly does not just apply to marriage. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, the Lord God of Israel, my God, the God of, of, of all of my brothers and sisters in Christ, tells us, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. That means they shall be lightly esteemed by God. Now, I don't want to be lightly esteemed by God, and if it comes to whether or not I'm going to be honored by God or not, I would prefer to be in the former category. Those who honor God will receive honor from Him. This is a basic principle for all of human life. If you don't want to honor God as a husband, then man, you are free to be a tyrant with your wife, to be a hard-nosed bear of a man who bosses everyone around and makes the whole house just bend to your will. I've certainly been guilty of that before. It's, it's, it's not a right way to live. It's not an honorable way to live. But you can do that. It doesn't honor God. 
He won't honor you if you do that. Uh, he will think very little of you, frankly, as it says. Uh, those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. But you're free to give it a go if that's how you want to uh, take your roles and uh, your role in marriage, uh, man. It won't go well, but you can give it a shot. Or, husband, if you want to be a little child in your marriage and shrink away from decisions and responsibilities, wither away in a corner every time there is a hardship or a disagreement, uh, you can be a baby if you'd like. If you don't want to lead, you can just shrink away from all responsibility. God won't honor that, but I don't think you're going to get, like I said, struck by lightning immediately. He's given you the responsibility to lead. Uh, he's given you the responsibility to lay down your life in leadership, this servant style of leadership that the Lord Jesus models when he takes up the basin and the towel and he washes the feet of his own disciples who would be the foundation of his church. He's given us the responsibility to lead and to lead rightly. But if you want to be a big baby, you can do that and basically leave your wife to manage and lead everything on her own. It's going to be a royal pain in the rear end for that woman, and your marriage is going to suffer, but you can give it a go. And wives, you don't have to submit to your husbands. God's, God wants you to do that. That's what the Bible says to do. But this is your decision as to how you're going to respond to God's will. You can belittle that man and point out his stupidity because there will be plenty of it to point out. Uh, you, you can, you can uh, uh, deal with all of his failures because there are going to be failures uh, by criticizing him and by using all of his blunders as ammunition for the next argument or marital battle. After all, you might very well be smarter, uh, wiser, perhaps a more capable leader than the man whom you've married. Many women are. Uh, but God is not going to honor that. And that's what this really boils down to, isn't it? That's what all of life boils down to. Do I want to honor God faithfully in my life? Yes or no? In this case, in my marriage, do I want to honor God? So comment number two that I would make is God blesses those who honor him. Comment number three there are four of these at the start. These instructions in marriage are for God's people. For God's people. If you aren't one of God's people, or if you are and you are foolish enough to marry someone who is not one of God's people, then trying to follow these instructions is probably not going to lead to a great relationship. I mean, if you have a woman on the one hand who is trying to be respectful and submissive to her husband, but she's married to a big jerk of a guy who can't control his temper, some, some hothead who doesn't even bother to try to control his temper, then it's probably not going to be very pleasant. She might be trying to do the right thing, uh, and God does want her to try to do the right thing, but it, it's going to be destructive at times. And frankly, if you marry a hothead jerk of a guy who doesn't love God or care about his word, can't receive instructions and won't listen to the Bible, then it's going to be a destructive marriage at times, no matter what you're trying to do, wife, in that relationship, because you've married a sinful, hell-bound jerk who needs to repent and be saved. And no amount of submissiveness is going to immediately change that. So, you know, I don't run around telling people who don't love the Lord and who don't follow Jesus, I don't run around telling them uh, what they should do in their marriage and what their marriage should look like. I mean, first of all, they're not going to care what I have to say anyway. What I have to say comes from the Bible. And if they don't love the Lord, don't believe in God, they're not going to care about that. You know, what I've got is for the people who are ready to put aside their own desires. What the Bible teaches us is for those who are ready to lay down their own lives and to try to follow Him, Right? And for those of us who are in those sorts of relationships, the instructions of God's word are for God's people and they will lead to blessing. So again, let me say that these instructions are for God's people of whom I hope you have chosen one to marry. Again, those are comments I make to my, child, to my children. Fourth comment, and here's my favorite one that I make to my own kids. No one is forcing you to be married. I mean... I know that in various places and at various times that marriages were arranged for people. I know that people have historically sometimes been forced into marriage, but I don't think that God wants that. I don't think that it's ultimately healthy. Uh, 
I certainly don't know of a single human being around me who is being forced into a marriage. It's illegal, frankly. So if a Christian man or woman is not ready to try to honor God in their marriage the way that God's word says that they should, if there is a young woman who just doesn't want to submit to a husband, there is an easy solution. Do not get married. Don't do it. If you want to honor God, and you know that you are not prepared to honor God, as he says, in a relationship, then don't enter into the relationship. I mean, there is no gun to your head. If there is, please tell me. I mean, I'll, I'll try to help. But I mean, again, this is illegal. So wh why are people throwing themselves into relationships in which, from the outset, they have no intention of honoring God in the first place? So here are the four comments on the roles of men and women in marriage. Again, to summarize, one, you don't have to do it God's way. It requires a commitment and conviction and a choice. Number two, God blesses people who try to honor him. Three, these instructions are for God's people who are trying to honor him. And four, no one is forcing you into marriage. So enter into it if you're prepared to honor God in order to receive honor from him. Now, the reason why I've taken time to remind us of what God wants in marriage, as we read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, is because the roles of men and women that they have in marriage, that they have in a relationship, uh, those roles have a relationship with the roles they're supposed to model in the assembly of the church. Now, just look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at these verses one by one, okay? We, and we'll move quickly. First, verse 11 says, Let a woman learn in silence and with all submission. And I always have a, you know, a tendency to kind of duck when I say that, right? Because I'm, I'm looking for the first person to get mad and throw something at me. But it says in verse 11, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Now, what does that mean? It means basically three things. Number one, women in a church assembly are supposed to learn. Now, they're supposed to be taught. They're not supposed to be neglected in the teaching or set off in a corner. They are part of the body, and the teaching of the church is for their instructions too. It's not just for men. Now, you may hear that and say, well, that's obvious, Pastor. You're just trying to butter us up for the more difficult points, yada, yada, yada. Just so you know, it's not that obvious. In most mosques, Muslim women are partitioned off. There is a dividing wall between the men and the women in those mosques when they go to worship. Some mosques don't even allow women to enter. And in many of the Jewish traditions, specifically the Jewish traditions that were prevalent in Jesus' day, it was discouraged and considered a waste of time to teach women, young women, older women, the Torah, what God's Word said. But the Bible does not segregate men and women in the Christian church. Believe it or not, this was seen as a scandalous liberalness in the early Christian church, that men and women would sit together and worship and learn under the same instruction, under the same teaching, with the same responsibility to take this teaching out into the world around them. This was scandalous. Surely men were superior and women were inferior. Why were they to learn alongside the men? But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Women were to be ever as much a part of the assembly of God's people, learning both as they are being discipled and discipling others to serve God. So the first thing this verse tells us is that women are to learn. Now, the second thing, the verse says that women should learn in silence. Now, what does that mean? That they shouldn't speak? No. No, that's not what it means. This learning in silence is clarified in the very next verse. Okay, so if you just read verse 11, then you're going to get all in a, in, a, in, a, in a hustle about, I can't believe that it says such a thing. But if you read verse 12, there's a clarification. And it says, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in, and here's that word again, silence. In other words... When Paul says that a woman is to learn in silence, it means that she is not supposed to be the teaching voice among the assembly of men and women in the local church. Her voice is not supposed to be the voice of leadership in the church, which brings us to the third part of verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Now that's what I mean. This is an issue of authority and leadership. And just as God does not desire the wife to be the head of the husband in marriage, so he does not desire women to be the leaders of the men in the church. Why? Because 
Men are called to lead. They are called to lead in the home, and they are called to lead in the church where the homes of Christians worship. Now, why? That's a fair question. Why? Verse 13. We've already covered verse 12. That verse explains verse 11. So verse 13 tells us why. Here it is in all its simplicity. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Now, <laughs> now folks, wherever you're listening to this, when I read that verse, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, it is pretty clear here that this is not going to be a plausible argument for the secularists and the feminists in the world around us. But this is really important to understand. So I've got a number of observations that I want to make about this. But the, right, right at the beginning, just, just let me explain. This argument in verse 13, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, is not going to be a great rebuttal to all the feminists who have a problem with this instruction. They don't believe in Adam and Eve, and if they believe in Adam and Eve, they don't believe it as the Bible declares Adam and Eve took place, and that's going to be a continued theme in the text here. This is not an argument that is going to put you in a superior position if you're having a debate out there, but it is, nonetheless, important in God's Word to understand for God's people, it's a prevailing argument. We believe the Bible. We believe in God. We believe in his creation. We believe in the authority of God's word. So, with that said, here are some observations about this little verse. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Okay, and, and I think you need to take these observations to heart. Number one, this is not about talent and abilities. Paul at no point suggests that the reason God has ordained men to be the leaders in the home and the church is because they are more capable and they are more skilled than the women. Uh, that is not the point. Many women are better communicators than men. There are, I'm sure, any number of women who could stand right here and give a more compelling and more interesting speech than what I'm doing right now. Many women are more thoughtful than men. Many women are more talented at administration than their male counterparts. And many women are, frankly and obviously, smarter than men. Paul doesn't say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence because men are better at this stuff than women. That is not the point, and we need to make that clear. That's observation number one. This is not about talent and ability. Observation number two. This is about what God created men and women to be. And this is where all of the unbelievers begin to laugh because they don't believe God created men and women in the first place. But this is about what God created men and women to be. Like it or not, the Bible is not ambiguous when it comes to the fact that God created. The Bible tells us that God created. As the creator, he bore the responsibility of design. He designed us. As the creator-designer, God chose to create man, and then he chose as a helper for the man to create a different creature of the same kind, a woman. He did not choose to create another man to be with the man. He did not create another man with special anatomical parts. He created a new thing, a woman. Eve's origin is unique to her. She was not made the same way as Adam. She was made after Adam. She was made from Adam. And while God named Adam, God gave Adam the responsibility of naming Eve. She was the creature created for him. This design is supposed to be on display in ways that honor God, both in the family and in God's church. And part of that design is displayed in the teaching and the leadership of the church, which is supposed to be overseen by a man, by men. So observation number two was, this is about what God created men and women to be. Observation number three, the rest of the world isn't going to believe this, and they aren't going to like it either. Uh, I want to be clear. I don't blame them. I don't blame people 
who uh, have rejected God and do not believe in the God of the Scriptures, do not believe in Christ Jesus, His Son, do not believe that there is a Spirit of God that indwells people and that brings people to spiritual life and godliness. I don't blame people who don't have their faith in my God for not believing in the design of my God described in Genesis 2. I mean, I don't believe in Hindu gods, and so I don't particularly take any, uh, any instruction from Hindu teaching. I don't believe in the God of Islam, so it really doesn't matter to me what uh, the teaching of the God of Islam says. So I'm neither surprised nor dismayed when people who don't believe in my God uh, don't particularly like what my God has to say. And frankly, there are lots of practical reasons for non-Christians to reject this teaching. There are abusive men out there, evil men who have done awful things with power and authority. And there are twisted, false teachers who have used Bible verses like this to justify their wicked and unchecked behavior. And there are, at the same time, capable and talented women who have been mistreated and discarded from all sorts of opportunities in all sorts of areas of life because people have wrongly applied the roles of men and women described for the church and for the family to the roles of men and women in all sorts of other organizations, which I think is ridiculous and we don't have license to do. The Bible doesn't say that a woman cannot teach at university. The Bible doesn't say that a woman cannot lead a company. The Bible doesn't say that a woman, by way of her gender, is inferior by nature to a man. What this passage tells us is that in the public assembly of the church, God has commissioned men to lead men, not women to lead men. And the world is not going to like that, even though it pertains to the church, an organization to which they are not a part of. Now, verse 14 says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. This does not mean that men are wise and discerning, and women are gullible and stupid. I've heard people uh, say things like that, even attacking the text, saying, well, don't you know that the Bible says that, you know, Eve was uh, gullible, and so all women are gullible, and that's just nonsense. I will say for my part, I have not found it to be particularly true that women are gullible while men are discerning. I, I have found the lion's share of gullible, undiscerning, and foolish people to be on the male side of the aisle, if in fact there is one to divide it. Nor do I think that that's what we're meant to gather from this verse, because it doesn't say that. Verse 14 is a history lesson. It's a history lesson. Now again, this isn't going to make one bit of difference to the unbeliever, because the unbeliever doesn't believe. The unbeliever hears the names Adam and Eve and chuckles. Okay, that we would have the audacity to believe in fairy tales. The unbeliever is not going to be persuaded by verse 14, but, and this I will remind you of again and again in our study of 1 Timothy, verse 14 was not written in order to persuade the unbeliever. It was written for the church. It's a history lesson to explain to the church why the roles God has designed for us to fulfill are important. Adam and Eve were in the garden together. Satan came, tempting Eve with a lie, that if she did what God had forbidden, she would become like God. In her ambition, she believed this lie, and she did what was forbidden. This is all what verse 14 is telling us, is reminding us of. And then Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, says these words, quote, She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Do you see the problem? She was the leader, at least in this instance. Adam did not do what God had forbidden because he believed Satan's lie. Adam did what God had forbidden because he was content to follow Eve. She ate, she chose, she acted, she said, Here. Take this. And he said, okay. Adam should have stepped forward and said, get away from her. 
Satan, get away from her, snake. Adam should have ripped the food away. I mean, if ever there was a point in time to go smacking something out of somebody's hand, it's, it's not to, you know, save someone from their diet. It's to save someone from their sin. You know, you should have whacked that thing as far as it could have gone. Adam should have refused to do what he knew that God had forbidden, even if he had been unable to keep Eve from doing evil. He should have been the leader that said, I will not do what I know is wrong. But he didn't do any of that. He didn't muster an ounce of leadership. You know, sometimes a leader who knows the right thing to do and who knows what is morally required in a situation and yet who is trying to lead an organization of an entire group of people who refuse to do the right thing, sometimes the leader is the leader because he's the one, she's the one who stands up and says, it doesn't matter to me if all the world does this wrong thing, I'm not going to do it. You know, that's leadership. And at the very least, Adam should have stood up and done that. But Eve was the much more compelling leader in that she appears in the narrative of the story to have little trouble convincing Adam to follow. But this is not how God designed the marriage to work. And it's not how God designed our marriages to work, and it's not how God designed the church to operate. God created man to lead his wife. And in the assembly of the church, in the assembly of the church, women are not supposed to reverse course and become the leaders and public teachers of the men. Which brings us to verse 15. And if you didn't like me up to this point because of everything that I've said, it's not going to get better from here. Verse 15 says, Nevertheless, She will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Okay, let me be as forthcoming here as I can be. I am not 100% certain what verse 15 means. I am 100% certain of some of the things that it does not mean, but I am not 100% certain about what it does mean. Hopefully I have not lost all respect from you in admitting that, uh, to which someone might say, don't worry, we didn't respect you in the first place, and that is a fair point, but I am not in the business of reading the Bible and then taking guesses as to what I think it means and then teaching it with all the authority that I can muster. So when I am not 100% sure about what something means, I think I've established a pretty good precedent over the years of teaching here that I'm just going to tell you, I'm not 100% sure, but I know a few things that it doesn't mean, and here they are. It doesn't mean that women are saved from eternal hell if they manage to have godly children. And it doesn't mean that women are saved from eternal hell if they manage to be godly while having children. I know it doesn't mean either one of those two things because the Bible repeatedly tells us, it repeatedly says that we are saved by God's grace through our faith and that our salvation doesn't have anything to do with our works, but it is a gift from God. And gifts are not earned. Gifts are not, gifts are not something that, that is paid to someone because they have done something good. That's, that's not a gift. It is apart from works that we experience salvation. We are saved by grace through faith, not by grace through childbearing. A woman does not need to have children in order to be saved from hell. What a terrible teaching that would be. I mean, how, how discouraging would that be to so, to, to so many women? And having children will not accomplish any part of her salvation from hell. This is the only verse in the Bible that could even possibly be interpreted that way. And since the same man who wrote this verse, the Apostle Paul, is the same man who repeatedly tells us that we are saved by faith alone, without ever mentioning childbearing, that it is not possible that he could be contradicting all that he said to this to this point in time with this one-off verse so it doesn't mean that this does not mean that a woman experiences salvation from eternal hell through childbearing what else then might it mean two strong contenders this is the traditional one it could be talking about eve who was the subject of the previous verses And the prophecy that God made concerning Eve in Genesis 3. You see, when God speaks to Satan in judgment in Genesis 3, after he deceives Eve, he says this, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your seed, serpent, and her seed, the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman in the Bible, prophetically fulfilled, is Jesus, born of a virgin. Jesus is the enemy of Satan. Jesus would be the judgment of God against all sin. Jesus is the judgment against the author of sin, Satan. Jesus, the seed of the woman, crushed the head of the serpent, Satan, even as Satan bruised his heel, so to speak, on the cross, the temporary destruction of the flesh conquered at the resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrated last week. So in 1 Timothy 2.15, Paul could be saying, Eve was deceived and fell into transgression, but she will be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, meaning the curse of God that fell on Eve and then by extension all women because the curse that's, that falls upon Eve in Genesis chapter 3, pain and childbearing and, and desiring the head of her husband, uh, th th that curse fell to all women as an extension. That curse, this could mean, in Genesis 3 has been removed in childbearing through Jesus who's died on the cross to free us from sin, to free us from the curse of sin, and to free all women. And it's that the, the freedom from that curse is now freely available to all women of faith who continue in godly living. Could mean that. I don't think that's what it means. But it's a strong contender. It could mean that. Instead, the other option that I think... Uh, this means, uh, is Paul is saying the role of a woman in the family, which Adam and Eve discarded in the garden, can be redeemed by a wife who embraces the responsibility of leading godly children as opposed to trying to become the leader of her own husband. A woman who is married, a woman who is going to be childbearing, a woman in the home can basically tackle the role of leadership in two ways. She can desire to be the head of her husband and the head of the family and wrestle with him for power, or she can accept God's role in the marriage and exercise leadership where God designed it in the raising of godly children, thus redeeming herself from the curse. Verse 14 is clearly taking Adam and Eve's marriage and their messed up roles in the family as the grounds for why the church is not to be governed with those same messed up principles. What should be observed in the family, godly men leading, is also to be on display in the church, godly men leading. Verse 15, then, is a comment Paul is making to encourage women who are married to embrace their role in the family, just as he has already encouraged women who are in the church to embrace their role in the church. Now, that's what I think it means. A better preacher at this point would probably find a way, and I'm not very good at this, to masterfully transition into a gospel presentation here. But I don't know how to do that in a timely way. And frankly, I don't particularly feel compelled to draw every message to a conclusion with an altar call. This is clearly a message to Christian people who have already accepted the Lord Jesus on how the church is to operate. It's not a message particularly to the lost. And I am a pastor of Christian people. I want to conclude the message then with two questions that I think are very relevant questions that I think people would naturally be asking here. So, question one. This is my best shot at being pastoral about the questions you might have here. Question one. Does this mean that a woman can never say anything in front of the assembly of God's people? Answer, that is clearly not what this means. This is about teaching the full assembly of the church with authority. It doesn't prohibit speaking. Like, it, it doesn't prohibit, for instance, a testimony, or it doesn't prohibit a voice of prayer even. It doesn't prohibit even a voice of education or experience when called on. For instance, I don't see anything wrong with a woman who is a missionary standing up and testifying of what she's seen, teaching what she's learned when called upon to do so. This passage is meant to prohibit a rejection of God's ordained roles for men and women in the church. It is not a muzzle for women, nor is it to be applied that way. Question number two, does this mean that God doesn't want women to teach? 
You know, the, the Spirit of God doesn't gift women to teach. That He doesn't want women to teach. And that any woman who feels compelled to teach is experiencing some wrong, sinful, uh, uh, com- uh, uh, compel- compelling thing from inside. It's not what it means. The context of the entire passage is about the assembly of the church. Now, this room is where our church assembles, and we just have not been able to do it for three weeks now. And i got to tell you, it is a, ripping me apart here. When this church assembles in this room, what should be on display is godly men leading in the teaching and the authoritative instruction of God's word. In other passages, women are encouraged to teach women, women are encouraged to teach children, and women teach young men whom they have been given responsibility for. I'll give you a few examples. Timothy's own upbringing was at the hands of his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. You can see in uh, Acts 18 another example. A young Apollos, who becomes this great Bible teacher in the New Testament church, but a young Apollos is found to be teaching doctrine that that is uh, unaware of the the work and the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he gets pulled aside, and do you know who it says pulls him aside to teach him? A husband and wife combo team pull Apollos aside. Aquila and Priscilla pull Apollos aside, and they both are credited with teaching and instructing him. Women can teach. And we have some wonderfully gifted teachers who are women in this church. I was raised by some of the wonderfully gifted teachers who were women in this church, not the least of which the instruction of my own mother and many other Sunday school teachers, many other uh, tutors, many other youth workers all throughout my upbringing. And I am eager to learn from women. Just personally, I am eager to listen to the teaching of women as, frankly, I think any reasonably minded man should be, just not in the assembly of the church, because that violates the roles of leadership which God has ordained. And folks, if I could just put a bow on this for a second, that is what this is really all about. Who is in charge of this group? Uh... I want to close with an illustration, and uh, my wife said that this is way too long of an illustration, but it, you know, it's a sports illustration, which I know a lot of people don't like anyway, but I am what I am. Uh, my favorite basketball team of all time, Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls. They were awesome. They won uh, six titles in eight seasons. The only, the only two seasons they didn't win a title in those eight years was because Michael Jordan thought it would be a good idea to play baseball. It wasn't. It wasn't a good idea to play baseball. He came back and they won three more titles. Uh, Their record over those uh, seasons, the final three seasons of his career was like 203 wins and 43 losses. And they won the championship all three times. 43 losses in three years. To put that in context, like half of the league loses 43 games a year. They didn't lose 43 games until a, a, a period of three years. Uh, and man, those Bulls teams, you know, you know who those guys were if you followed basketball at the time. Uh, you know, WGN was uh, the Chicago station that you could get with the, the real basic cable package so I could watch all these games with my dad. You can't do that anymore. There, you got to have some, some uh, ESPN or TNT package. But back then, I could watch all these games with my dad and, you know, Michael Jordan. He was the scorer, you know. He was the he was the big head honcho. He could do everything. It seemed. I mean, he played defense. He was, clearly, you know, and to my thinking, the best basketball player who ever lived. And that was his role. You know, he was flying around and dunking and shooting fadeaways. And then uh, he was the guy the defense had to focus on. And then you have you know Steve Kerr, and really all Steve Kerr did was shoot threes. He couldn't dunk or do anything else. I mean, maybe he could dunk, but he wasn't ever, he wasn't about to try it in a game. He would just kind of float around the three point line, right? And when Michael would would drive to the basket and draw the defense in, then Steve Kerr would be open somewhere out there, and then he'd pass it, and and that's that's that was his role: shoot a three, you know, just shoot a shot, be, get open, shoot a shot, you know. And then they had uh, Scottie Pippen. You know, he was the second best scorer on the team and the best defender. And whenever they played a team with a really good score, it was almost always Scottie Pippen's job. It wasn't Jordan's job. It was almost always Scottie Pippen's job to lock that guy down. That that person wasn't going to beat him. You know. And whenever Michael was struggling, Scottie would take the reins and he would he would carry the load scoring. And they had Dennis Rodman. And Dennis Rodman, who's probably never been used in a church illustration before, but Dennis Rodman, uh, whose only job was to rebound a basketball, get all the rebounds. And he, like, led the league in rebounds or, or nearly led the league in rebounds for years. And if he took 10 shots in a game, something was wrong. He was not supposed to shoot. That, that was his role. Get the rebound. 
Get the rebound, right? They had guy, big guys like Bill Winnington and Luke Longley who, who were just supposed to play defense on the big guys. That's all they did. They weren't supposed to shoot. They weren't supposed to score. If they did, great, but they just stopped the big guy, you know? They were the Shaquille O'Neal stoppers. They were the guys supposed to put a ball. hack a shack, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you think that I've lost my mind. My point is, everybody had a role. Everybody had a role. Uh, those teams are a big part of my childhood. I could have talked about them forever. But you know, the, one of the, the person that I didn't mention was the coach, and the coach was Phil Jackson. And it was Phil Jackson's job to put everybody in the right role. But, you know, the coach has got to do more than that. The coach has got to convince these, these athletes who are the most athletic people in our country, you know, and they make it all the way to the NBA. The coach has got to convince these people to accept their role, to embrace their role. To, 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 take, to take pride and, and, and to take pleasure in fulfilling their role at his direction. Michael Jordan played, you know, like 10 years before he ever won his first title. He played a long time, you know. He played, he, you know, and he had some great performances, but he never had playoff success. His teams never made the finals. He never, made, he never won an NBA championship. He never won an MVP because he didn't know what his role was. That was all before Phil Jackson came along. But Phil Jackson comes along, and he gets Michael to buy into, into this role, this leadership role. And he convinces all these athletic, talented guys around him to buy into their roles and to, to let Michael lead and to do their own, their own supporting element, and that if we could all just fulfill our roles together, we could be great. It was Michael Jordan's team, yeah. It was Chicago's team, yeah. But in a lot of ways, man, this was Phil Jackson's team. That's why, you know, when Michael retired because the team said Phil wasn't going to coach anymore. He said, I'm not playing for anybody else. He, he hadn't won with anybody else. It, it took somebody who had an idea of what the role should be and who, who, who the people on the team were going to trust. If, if we embrace these roles, even if it's not what I feel I would like to do, if we embrace these roles, we're all going to be better off for it. Now... The question, and the reason I bring that up is, the question that we have to ask ourselves when we think about marriage is, who is, who is this marriage going to belong to? You know, I have a wife. I've been married almost 20 years now. Who is my marriage going to belong to? If it's going to belong to me, then I'll just do whatever I want, and I'll try to enforce my own vision of what my role in the marriage should be. If it belongs to my wife, if that's how she sees it, then she's going to you know, do what she thinks is best and going to try to exert her own will into whatever role she thinks she should have. But if we both look at each other and we say, you know what, we pledged ourselves, husband and wife, before God. This is his marriage because we're his servants. If we approach it like that, then it's not hard to look at God and say, God, you tell us what our roles are. We'll do the best that we can and we'll trust you with the results. Now, that takes faith. It takes sacrifice, both from the husband and the wife. But that's what the Bible calls us to. And you know, it's the same in the church. Does the church belong to any one man or any one woman? Does it belong to any particular committee or group? No, no. Who does the church belong to? It belongs to God. It belongs to the Lord Jesus. Whose responsibility is it to order the roles inside the church the way that they're supposed to be? Is it mine? No, it's not mine. It's not mine. I'm a pastor, but it's not my responsibility. It's the Lord's. And you know, the Bible says that he does that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 that each of us receives spiritual gifts, gifts that are unique from the people around us in the church, gifts that are meant to complement our brothers and sisters of Christ in the church because the Lord passes out those gifts spiritually to all of his people so that the whole body growing together might grow to the fullness of the stature of the image of God. Maturity. It's the Lord's church. And, and you know, if it's my church, then maybe I say, well, you know, I want to be what I want to be in the church. And if I can't be what I want to be in the church, then I'm going to be mad. Yeah, you might think the same thing if you say, you know, this is my church, but it's not my church. It's not your church. It's the Lord's church. 
What does he say? And you know, this is so important to finish with today because we're going to get to chapter 3 next week in 1 Timothy. You know what chapter 3 is? It's qualifications for pastors, qualifications for deacons, because God sets those qualifications. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. It's his church. It's his church. There are a lot of churches out there that are not doing things God's way. And, you know, they think, well, we're still really successful. We found our own model. And what they mean is, you know, we've got a really compelling and interesting teacher. doesn't meet God's qualifications. Maybe it's a woman doing all the teaching, or maybe it's a man who simply doesn't meet the qualifications. We'll start looking at next week in chapter 3. But they don't care because, you know, it's a really interesting and entertaining teacher, and he never makes anybody mad, and he, he presses the right buttons, and he has the right presentation. He's probably got a full head of hair, and he's the right weight. Uh, he doesn't look like me. But, you know, they think, hey, that's success. We found our own model that works because they measure success based on a standard that has nothing to do with whether or not they're honoring God and His Word. Or they measure success by how many people are showing up. Or they measure success by how many people are getting along, or whatever. But you know, if we're going to measure success by God's standard, honoring Him, then we're going to have to embrace God's design. It never honors a Creator to reject His design. It never honors a Creator. You might be able to do something creative on your own, but in our case, the creator that we're rejecting is an almighty God who call us into account for the way that we live and the way that we do things. You know, it's one thing if you take some painter's picture and mess around with it. It's another thing if you take the design of the almighty God and you say, nah, I think I can do better. Let's not, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I know these things are hard, and I know these things tend to make people angry. I hope, Father, that they haven't made people confused. I've certainly tried to avoid confusion as I go through these things, and I don't know who's going to listen to this or when they'll listen to it. It could be that this gets shared around to some unbelievers who think that this is bogus and who maybe get really upset that this is being taught or could get around to Christians who accepted other models of success besides simply honoring you and your word, and so they get offended by this and say, well, who does this guy think he is? I don't know where your word's going to go, but I know that when we trust your word and preach your word and declare your word, we have nothing ultimately to fear. You are my shield and my fortress. You will honor those who honor you, and as best I can, that's what I've tried to do now. So, Father, I pray that all of your people will hear this and accept it that they'll think through it, that they'll understand your purpose and your design, both in the family and in the church, and that they'll see it as a good thing, not as something that handicaps or cripples God's people, but something that empowers God's people to collectively be more than they can be individually on their own or with their own plans or models. I thank you, Father, for the freedom to preach and to teach and for the freedom uh, to gather together. Father, I, I, I certainly uh, miss the the assembly of your people, and I pray for a speedy return. I pray, Father, that that freedom is not truly taken away from us. I pray, Father, that we're not left in a situation where we have to reject Caesar. So, Father, I pray for our leaders. Give them wisdom and give them strength. Give them courage, but give them a sense of rightness that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is every bit as essential to a loving and a benevolent civilization as the liquor stores that remain open. Father, I thank you for our church and for our people. I pray that you will protect them and keep them safe and that you will use any suffering in this period of time as a, as a mechanism of growth and, and gospel witness. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. <laughs>